I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey, Jim. Good to be back with the latest edition of the Other Hand podcast. Um, The things that we're going to talk about today, I think, are painfully obvious. In many ways, I wish we weren't talking about these things. I wish we were scrabbling around for things to talk about. But before we get into some of the things that uh, are on our agenda today, I want to talk about three things in the wake of some comments that we've had on the back of our last podcast. Um, with some of which might seem slightly trivial, but given that people are taking us to task, I will respond. The first is the use of the definite article when we talk about the Ukraine. Um, That's wrong. Of course, it is just Ukraine. The sensitivities around the pronunciation of the capital city. Um, Kiev is apparently the way Russians pronounce it. So uh, Ukrainians are, we are told by several people, quite sensitive about that. So we will try to pronounce it the way they pronounce it, which is Kiev. Um, And I apologize if I got that bit wrong. And the story that I told about the guys on Snake Island telling the Russian ship to go fuck themselves and then dying, thankfully, turned out to be wrong. The first bit of that story was true. And it was a story that was widely disseminated on Ukrainian media on the day that I mentioned it. So I don't think it was fake news in, in the usual sense of that term. It was just a mistake. And in fact, the latest news, which of course, in the way these things go, could always turn out itself to be wrong, is that these guys are in fact prisoners of war. So thankfully, it looks like they did not get killed. So that's by way of introduction, by way of responses that we had last time. Um, I'm now going to hand over to you, Jim, because I know that you've been exercised by something that 
Michael McDool wrote in today's Irish Times about these sorts of matters. Yeah, uh, good afternoon, Chris. How's it going? I just first of all like to say that on Monday of this week, we passed the first anniversary of the launch of The Other Hand. Uh, it's been a great year. I've really enjoyed it. You put a nice message up on our Substack account, so I didn't bother replicating that, but all the sentiments that you expressed, I agree with. I'd like to thank everybody for um, following us over the last 12 months. Uh, really welcome all of those comments, and I would totally... Uh, you know, back up what you were saying there, but the the corrections in relation to Ukraine, uh, Kiev, etc. That's all good stuff. It's great to get the feedback. Um, this morning in the Irish Times, I was taken by an article by Michael McDowell, and um, I I have to be careful here when I talk about this because I could be accused of, and with justification probably, of confirmation bias. But I particularly like the piece, Mike McDowell was started off by talking about Putin and Donald Trump. And um, he said that both of them are very, very similar. He described them as psychological misfits, kleptocratic. Uh, they both have had a kleptocratic campaign to subvert democracy. And um, he said that Trump is as dangerous as Putin in the manner in which he seized virtual control of the Republican Party over the last number of years. And uh, we got another taste of that uh, last weekend with the Conservative Political Action Conference in Florida. And of course, the January 6th events of 2021 uh, were a clear manifestation of the sort of control he has. And MacDell then went on to talk about uh, the dangers that if the Democrats do not put up a very viable candidate in the 2024 presidential election, and or if Ron DeSantis of uh, Florida, the Florida governor, does not win the um, uh, the candidacy for the Republican Party for the 2024 election. If he, in other words, if he doesn't beat Trump, uh, that the whole Western liberal democ- democracy is going to come under further increasing threat. And I think we, you know, we have spoken, and I have certainly spoken recently about the risks to democracy that the November midterm in the elections in the United States pose this year, because, you know, the Republicans are likely to regain control of both houses. Uh, and that certainly could give Trump um, a decent leg up ahead of the uh, 2024 campaign. Um, then... Um, interestingly, having, you know, devoured Putin and Donald Trump, uh, Michael McDowell goes on to talk about uh, Sinn Féin's behaviour um, in recent times in this country. You know, he said that their cadre of online trolls are strangely mute at the moment. Um, Sinn Féin MEPs voted against the boycotting um, of the Nordstrom 2 pipeline uh, because they described it as overly confrontational. And um, he's also taken by the fact that we're hardly hearing a word from him about the civil rights abuses of Putin over the last number of years, but particularly in relation to the Ukrainian situation at the moment. And also, if you look at what the uh, Chinese are doing and threatening to do in Hong Kong and Taiwan, um, you know, we're, we're not hearing a peep out of him. And indeed, uh, 
I, I would have to say that the behaviour of some of the Irish MEPs in Brussels over the last few days um, fills me with despair and depression, I have to say. Um, you know, they continue to take a pretty pro-Russian view at the moment. And to be perfectly honest, looking at the Ukrainian situation as it unfolds on our screens um, on an early basis, um, personally, I would find it impossible to be 1% supportive of what the Russians are doing. I just think right is so much on the side of Ukraine at the moment. Um, but, you know, when you have Irish MEPs, I think 13 MEPs yesterday um, vote, voted in a pro-Russian, anti-Ukrainian way, and two of those were Irish, which is a pretty disproportionate representation. So there's a lot going on, but um, it's a pretty depressing situation. And uh, we spoke about it late last week when it was starting to unfold. And um, I think at this juncture, uh, the seriousness of what is going on and the, the the horror of what is going on is absolutely incredible. And I would really fear for the people of Ukraine over the coming days and weeks and months. Yeah, your comments about left-wing politicians, be they, be they MEPs or domestic politicians, I think you'd make similar remarks for many countries, not just Ireland and its left-wing parties like Sinn Féin. There's a peculiarity of the political spectrum throughout the world where you have the extreme left and the extreme right. Often it's not a straight-line continuum of that political spectrum, but more a, a, a circle where the extreme left and the extreme right often end up meeting each other in terms of their views in most strange and partic- peculiar ways. Um, and one of those ways is in which the extreme left and the extreme right in many countries have expressed in various ways over the years their admiration for Vladimir Putin. In the UK, you have right-wing populists like Nigel Farage, for example, and there are many others um, who once upon a time wrote articles saying how much Putin was the world leader that he admired the most. And as I say, it's the extreme left and the extreme right in similar and different ways often express admiration, liking for, or some kind of affinity with Putin-style politics. The extreme left usually come at it from simply uh, an anti-capitalist, Western liberal democracy-hating perspective. The extreme right share some of those things, not the anti-capitalist thing, but more a uh, pro-kleptocracy type uh, perspective. This is where your points about, uh, and and McDowell's points about Donald Trump, I think, are, are very resonant, which is that the kleptocracy that Donald Trump tried to impose on the United States is very similar to the one that Putin has imposed on Russia. And as you say, Donald Trump may well be making a comeback. And we may have to talk more about that in a few years time, if we're all still here. Um, So there's lots of sort of political dynamics there that I think are absolutely interesting. And if you're talking about newspaper articles worth reading, the one that I would urge people to read if they can, because I think it's behind a paywall, is in today's London Times written by somebody called Daniel Finkelstein, which touched on all of these issues, but really spoke about that this is the time where those of us in who don't inhabit the extreme left and the extreme right really do need to be, stand up and be counted. And the liberal democracy that is so derided by those extreme lefts and extreme rights 
um, the liberal democracy that um, Ireland has had for many years now that is so derided by Sinn Féin, the liberal democracy that the UK has tried to have that is so derided by the Brexiteers and others. It's, t- it's time to stand up and be counted. And it's a wonderful piece and a wonderful piece of writing, as Danny Finkelstein's often is, and I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. Those are all political dimensions, Jim, which I think, you know, have clearly got a long way to play out. And I personally think it's now an existential struggle for Western liberal democracy, the outcome of which is still highly uncertain. We might we might lose this battle. Go yeah, I, I, I have to say, Chris, thinking about what's happening over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, it strikes me that Trump and Boris Johnson, your old friend, um, have a lot to be accountable for here. Uh, obviously, Trump, um, you know, created serious divisions in the United States. They were already there pre-Trump, have no doubt about that. And one could argue that Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and the creation of the Tea Party basically, you know, started that division of the US political system and the divisiveness. But during the four years of Trump's presidency and subsequently those divisions have certainly been been exacerbated in a very, very dramatic way. And then in the United Kingdom and Europe, you have Boris Johnson and his continual anti-EU rhetoric. Um, and he wasn't the first Tory, obviously, to um, carry that particular flag. But, you know, this, this, this Trump or sorry, Boris obviously brought it to a new level by actually pushing for and getting the UK out of the United, out of the European Union. So what we've seen from Trump and Boris over the last couple of years, I believe, is a significant splintering and weakening of the sort of Western liberal democratic alliance. And if you were Putin sitting in the Kremlin watching all of this, and I think we all know what you know what sort of a psychopathic character uh, Putin is at this stage, and he's he's certainly proving it over the last week. But if you're Putin and you've been observing over the last number of years what's happening within the United States, within the European Union, and between the United States and the European Union, you'd say to yourself, "Well, if there was ever a time to start um, creating problems here for Western democracy, this is it." So I think both of those politicians, to their actions, have created serious vulnerability in the Western world. And I think we're now starting to see um, the latest manifestation of that in the Ukrainian situation. And um, I, I I love the sentiments expressed by Fingerstein. I haven't read the piece, but um, for those of us who are not on the hard left or the hard right, um, it is definitely time to stand up and defend these liberal democratic values. We're not arguing and nobody could argue for one second that Western liberal democracy is perfect. It's not. It's deeply flawed. Uh, No system is perfect. Every system has its flaws. And that's because you are dealing with human nature. And, you know, human beings behave in certain ways, very often in unpredictable ways. So it's not a perfect system, uh, but it's, it's a hell of a lot better than the alternatives that have been presented out there at the moment. I'd be so, much more aggressive in promoting its virtues, Jim, rather than uh, defending its weaknesses, to be honest, which are apparent to all of us. But I, th- Chris, I do Chris, think... Sorry, we- sorry. I was just preempting um, some of the feedback I was likely to get. Uh, you oh, know, absolutely. 
Yeah. I think you've, you've invited the Sinn Féin trolls to make an appearance on our on our Substack site, actually. Let, let, let's hope that none oh, of them... Sorry, are I interrupted you, Chris. I interrupted no, you. No, no, I interrupted you. Um, I think the point that you make about Brexit in particular is really interesting, and I know it's been a hobby horse of mine for many years in many different ways, but it's important to say that one of the biggest non-British supporters of Brexit out there, perhaps the biggest two supporters of Brexit in the world, um, both pre and post the referendum were two people called Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And this is where the Leave campaign drew a lot of its um, support, uh, a lot of its sustenance. Um, and one of the things that we've always wondered is the extent to which Russian money influenced the Leave campaign. Um, we've never had answers to those to those questions. But you should know people by the by the company that they keep. And that an awful lot of the Brexiteers, the the, the ultras, I call them, um, there's a reason why there there were photographs of Nigel Farage standing next to Donald Trump in his um, Park Avenue apartments, that famous photograph with all that gold gilt, etc. So I do think you're right that there are links between what is happening now and Brexit. There has been a campaign by Putin in particular, but also joined in by Trump, joined in by China to exploit Western weaknesses, to create division. Brexit is a prime example of what I'm talking about. And although he would, I'm not saying that Brexit was a prime driver of what's going on at the moment, or even um, uh, you know up there in the top ten of drivers, but there is a dotted line between Brexit and what Putin is doing now in terms of its scale, timing, nature and overall approach. And I yield to no one in in that view. So Jim, let's talk let's move away from the politics for Chris, a moment. I'm sorry. Can, can I just say one other thing that strikes me in relation to the politics of this? Um an, another favorite game of Boris and his people is to deride the BBC as a media organ. Um I've been watching BBC sort of permanently for the last week and um, Irish journalists like Orla Gearn and Fergal Keane doing an absolutely fantastic job. So um, it, it, it got me thinking. I, 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 I'm not a big television watcher at the best of times, but for the last week I've been watching a lot of it. But I just think the news coverage coming out of the BBC at the moment in the Ukrainian situation uh, is, is absolutely fantastic. And uh, it, it, it would certainly cause anybody who would be listening to Boris's sort of view towards the BBC um, to question themselves, I would have thought. Well, yes. I mean, the Conservatives' attitude towards the BBC has been that they want to defund it, they want to dismantle it. They don't like it because, A, the BBC, frankly, is an institution that expresses liberal democratic views of both centre-left and centre-right, actually. The, the Conservative Party think it's a hotbed of leftism, which it, which it is not. It, it does have some lefties in it. Of course it does. It has plenty of lovies, but that's no reason to deride its overall output. But the main reason why the Conservatives don't like the BBC is that the BBC is often critical, quite rightly so, and does something called fact-checking. And the one thing that demagogues, totalitarians, populists absolutely hate is anything that they say or do being checked against reality. And that that we've been doing it with... The BBC has done a fantastic job, actually. Look at some clips by a fantastic journalist called Ross Atkins. He does lots of different three, five-minute segments where he explains very complex phenomena in very straightforward, understandable terms. 
Um, and one of the many things that he's done is um, deconstruct uh, Putin's rambling, psychotic uh, in reinvention of history as to why the Ukrainians, sorry, why Ukraine doesn't deserve to exist, never has existed. It was a figment of Lenin's imagination and all that kind of bogus historical mumbo jumbo. So yes, so we'll obviously come back to the politics of this many times, probably again on this very podcast, Jim. But at least in headline terms, in the time that we've got left to us, I want to just touch on, make people aware of some of the very big consequential issues that have flowed in the world of finance and economics and therefore politics, because this obviously, when they, these implications are as big as they are, they will have not just financial and, and economic consequences, they will have political ones. And whatever these consequences are, they, they are consequences for everybody. There are big questions being asked about the future um, role of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, which really throws into question the world's global trading system if those questions are answered in the negative. And that's got a lot to do with the way in which the world's central banks, a part of the new sanctions regime, have decided to freeze the assets of the Russian central bank that are currently held overseas in banks like the Bundesbank, the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve. That's very technical, and I could go into an awful lot of discussion about the assets and liabilities of your average central bank's balance sheet, but I suspect we'd lose half our listeners at this point. But just suffice to say that um, Russia could run out of money very quickly. Its banking system could run out of foreign exchange very, very quickly. Um, It's not guaranteed, it's not certain, but these are really massively impactful uh, consequential moves that are tricky for even so-called experts like us to, to figure out. We know that the Russian Central Bank has $630 billion of reserves, which on the face of it means that Russia couldn't run out of money because that's huge for an economy of its size. They've built up that war chest. $130 billion of that is in physical gold, which sits, we think, in Russia. Um, there is a, a bit held by, in Remnimbi by, in, the, in Chinese banks. They could presumably, if China continues to play ball with Russia, so this is the political again, get their hands on those Remnimbi. But given what's going on with the other sanctions, with the other central banks, and this thing about the SWIFT system that many people will have heard of, I just wonder how useful those Remnimbi would be to Russia. Because what you need foreign exchange, foreign exchange for is to buy stuff from other countries. And if you can't get banks to accept, even if it is Remnimbi, then you are in trouble. Um, They could sell their gold. Um, That would be an interesting manoeuvre. Again, who could they sell it to? They couldn't sell it to a British, German or American or indeed Irish bank. Um, But some very clever intermediaries might find ways of sanctions, busting sanctions, evading. So we'll see with that. But the rest of the money is, is held um, the, the the dollars, the euros, and the pounds are all held in British, European, and American banks, and they're frozen. And if everybody in Russia who thinks that they have dollar, pound, euro assets deposits in banks went to their bank tomorrow and tried to claim them, as they might well be doing, there are signs of it, um, they're going to get into a lot of trouble. It's going to be a classic bank run. And it could shut the, the Russian financial system down, or at least have very severe implications for it. We shall see. So, but the media have made much of the move about SWIFT, which 
I know you think isn't that big a deal, and I would agree with you. Um, but I think the big deal is the is the central bank move. But the fact that you can have your reserves frozen at the flick of a pen or the flick of a switch these days leads to people saying something like, well, that means that what we thought were was the reserve role of the dollar and other currencies is no longer what it was. That whole financial global financial architecture over the next few years is going to have to be rethought. Certainly, if you're a dictator or a totalitarian or a demagogue thinking of invading another country next to you, you're going to have to think very carefully about your international financial situation. Um, and it, it, it will have huge um, but very uncertain consequences. Um, the other things that I think are going on that are really interesting financially and economically is, is this debate now, as always, about interest rates. It might seem a bit crass, but I think it's worth pointing out that in, in terms of things like real bond yields and five-year treasuries, five-year European yields, we've had moves this week that we haven't seen apart from times of extreme stress, indeed crisis. And somebody, I think it was Neil Irwin of the New York Times, said, when you start to wonder and ask questions about the plumbing of the financial system, you're reminded that the last time you asked questions like that was during the great financial crisis of 11, 12 years ago. And there's things going on underneath the hood of the financial system now, Jim, that I must say worry me a lot. One of the things that we said on our last podcast is that the great rally, um, short-term rally of last week in US equities looked wrong to us. And on Monday and Tuesday of this week, at least, I'm not claiming victory, but for two days, the equity markets agreed with that conclusion. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But it looks like um, we're moving into an era, to me, of uh, people starting to scale their interest rate hike expectations back. We're still going to get them. Um, but uh, lower growth, higher inflation, and maybe not so higher interest rates as we thought. What do you think? Yeah, as you say, it's been quite extraordinary what has happened in financial markets. There has been a pretty dramatic revaluation of central banks' short-term interest rate expectations. Uh, there was a view two weeks ago that the US Federal Reserve would increase interest rates by a half percent in March. Uh, whether that was ever going to happen or not is a moot point, but that's what the markets and a lot of commentators were talking about. And there was a growing view that by the end of the year, the European Central Bank could actually start to tighten monetary policy. Uh, it's a view you disagreed with ever before the Ukraine situation. Um, I was a lot less confident about it. Uh, but what we've seen in the last week is um, I think the dilemma for central bankers has been magnified in dramatic fashion. If you look at one level at what's happening on oil and gas markets at the moment, oil hit $110 a barrel today. Uh, natural gas prices are up significantly. So they have been the two biggest drivers of inflation almost everywhere over the last six months. So they're now going to feed into even higher inflation. But of course, with increased energy costs, it undermines economic activity. So it's well, it's it's bad for inflation, but it's also bad for economic activity. So if you're a central banker facing those sorts of challenges um, and, and let's face it, prior to the Ukrainian situation imploding, central bankers were already in a very, very difficult space in terms of what to do with monetary policy. 
that has been magnified dramatically in the last week. Um, even this this morning, we had the latest inflation reading for the euro area. Inflation has hit 5.8%, up from 5.1% in January. And energy costs are up by 31.7%. Food is up by 4.1%. And services inflation, as has been the case over the last year, um, pretty muted at 2.5%. So a lot of inflation building up in the system there. And it, it's mainly driven, as I say, by energy and food. And of course, the Ukrainian-Russian situation is going to exacerbate those pressures because I say oil hitting $110 a barrel and it doesn't look like stopping there unless we get massive intervention. And, and indeed, the International Energy Agency today said that global energy security is now under serious threat and they're going to increase the supply of oil by 60 million uh, barrels. And OPEC have also come out and said, of which Russia is a member, I think. Um, OPEC has come out and said that um, it had planned to increase output of oil by $400,000 barrels per day uh, during April, and it's sticking to that schedule. So there is going to be a supply-side response. But having said that, you know, those energy pressures are going to continue to feed into inflation. And on the food side, uh, it's probably the case that we ain't seen nothing yet because uh, food price inflation was starting to pick up. Uh, the FAO, for example, has been alluding in recent times to significant upside potential for food prices. And then if you look at the Ukraine-Russian situation, uh, the UK, the Ukraine, sorry, I shouldn't say the Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia are major wheat exporters. Um, and OK, those exports will come under threat, not necessarily because of sanctions, but because of the transportation facilities will be seriously are being seriously undermined by uh, the war that's going on at the moment. And it's also the case, of course, that in times of war, particularly in, in Ukraine at the moment, um, it's just not possible for farmers to go out and plant crops. And this is the time of the year they will be typically doing it because a lot of them are actually gone into the cities to defend against the Russians. So that there, there is a huge issue over the breadbasket of the world, basically, um, and its ability to supply wheat over the coming year. Um, Russia and Belarus account for, I think, about 40% of global potash production. And as a non-farmer, you probably don't understand this, Chris, but um, as a farmer, I'll try and explain. Potash, potash is a significant ingredient in agricultural fertilizer. So uh, that, that, that if, if potash supply is going to diminish significantly, the price of it is going to go up that is going to feed into higher fertilizer prices and it's just going to exacerbate the upper pressure on food prices. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, which number one is going to push inflation higher for longer, but number two is going to undermine economic activity. So the challenge for central bankers is what to do in this sort of environment. Um, I think we have to look at the United States and the European Union in isolation from each other insofar as you can, because I think two very different situations. The US is not likely to be significantly affected by the um, Ukrainian situation. So consequently, 
Um, I think the Federal Reserve is likely to increase rates by a quarter, not a half in this later this month. I think it's Patrick's Day, as far as I know. And um, uh, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has pretty much made that point in the last 24 hours or so. But I think the perspective from the European Central Bank would be very different. Um, I think interest rate increases are gone off the agenda in the euro area for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that certainly looks um, the situation to me. And don't worry, Jim, just because I, I used to say that I didn't think Europe was going to raise interest rates before this before Ukraine developed into the situation it has. I'm not going to claim I, I'm, I will admit to getting it right for the wrong reasons. If indeed that's the way it turns out, there is a lot of water to flow under that bridge. I'd just like to conclude going back to actually um, that political discussion that we had and think about the logic of the situation that we're in, which is it strikes me that either Vladimir Putin or Ukraine in their current incarnations cannot coexist on this planet together for very much longer. And uh, we know what Putin is trying to do to Ukraine. He's trying to do what he did in um, Chechnya. He levelled Grozny, what they did in Aleppo, places like that. And so that's the ghastly, uh, bister, short term anyway, that, that Ukraine is facing. Longer term, we're hearing a lot, or at least in the stuff that I'm reading, about something called an off-ramp for Putin. Have you heard about this? That he ends up going to somewhere like Dubai or some other friendly despotic regime that will take him and his money and his mistresses and enable him to live the life that he wants and enable Russia to get on with whatever life it wants and Ukraine to be the independent state that we all hope it remains. That could go off in any one of a number of directions, Jim, and it could take years to resolve. So I must say I'm not terribly optimistic about this, these things that we're worried about, these, these consequences, both political and financial none of which in the short term or medium term to me seem to be good. And so I do think that we are in for a difficult time. Chris, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning um, where you put your hand up about the Snake Island situation. Um, We are in um, an evolving story here and things are going to change from minute to minute. Uh, When you reported the Snake Island story, um, you reported it as something that appeared in the media. So uh, I, I, I think we are entitled to report stories that are being reported in the media. Um, and then a few days later, it subsequently transpired, as far as we understand, that the soldiers weren't actually killed by the Russians. Uh, but I think it's, uh, I think it's a little bit disingenuous to have a go at you over telling that story and pointing out to you was wrong. When you well, said it, it appeared right, it appeared in the media. So yeah. I, I think what I'm really trying to say is that in this situation particularly, I guess we're going to come out with a lot of stuff that could be proved wrong within 24 hours, but that's the nature of the sort of uncertain war environment we're in at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, when we report things as uh, apparent facts that turn out not to be, I think it is incumbent on us to to issue a corrective, but not to beat ourselves up because of that. If we if we deem our sources to be good, we're not just going to read out any old stuff from Twitter. We'll never do that. But if we see official media, as you say, reporting something, we will uh, echo that and um, comment on it, which is what the job of this podcast is, and then correct it if it proves to be wrong. So most of what we talk about is is trying to establish the facts and then figuring out what that might mean for 
various scenarios going forward. And as you say, Jim, we'll make mistakes, particularly in this kind of environment. But I don't think we will beat ourselves up for that. Sure. All right, Jim, we'll call it there. And um, see you next time. Yeah. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.